for sexuality, you should have some notes that we've been going through the same set for the last few weeks, so some of you probably brought those back with you, but if not, the guys were handing them out, and everybody have a set of notes? Does anyone need a set? Anybody over here? And over here? Got one here. See the John, the hand? Is that it? Just the one? Sally, I think. Oh, we're good. Okay. Hey, when I'm saying, does anybody need notes, you can't be waving at each other. I get, confu- I get confused easily, okay? Everybody got notes? Good. All right. We'll be looking at page 21, picking up where we left off. Announcements. This Friday is the annual Ladies' Christmas Fellowship. And for that, we are going to need to set up, men, if you can help us with that, we'll set up after we're finished here, ladies, if you can leave as quickly as possible, and then guys, if you can stay in here, then uh, Brother Keith Bass will come to the front, and he'll give some instructions about how we want to set tables up in here to prepare for Friday night. The following morning at 9 o'clock, we're going to have a men's breakfast. Guys, you're all invited to that. The uh, breakfast itself is always great and as is the uh, fellowship, so I encourage you to avail yourself of that. Nine o'clock, as you see there, nine to 11, this uh, coming Saturday morning. On the 17th, so two weeks from this evening, we have our annual adult Christmas fellowship. That's always just fun. It's a fun night. It is for adults, so you need to make arrangements uh, for your children, but uh, please plan on attending. Go to the website. You see that banner there, and it tells you what to do if you want to register for the first annual talent show, and I want to make clear that it's my understanding with regard to the talent show that it's not just a, a silly talent, but rather if you, if you have a talent, like if you can sing or you can play an instrument or any of that, you know, we'd like to know that, now, and, and we'll be kind about it. Like if you think you're talented at that and you're really not, we won't say so, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but we would like to know really what things, uh, talents are in our our body here. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a stand-up comedian. You don't have to, although silly stuff is welcome, but serious things are, are welcome as well. On Saturday, January the 6th, that is the Young Adult Apologetics Seminar. It's a one-day seminar. It's in Troy, and I'll be one of the speakers at that. I'll be going through some of the material that we're going through here. So I've been tasked with uh, doing a, a workshop on this issue of the LGBTQ plus challenge for, uh, for Christians and young adults are certainly uh, confused about that. And so we're having a, a seminar for that. There'll be uh, other topics covered and we have invitations for that out on our Welcome Center desk. So avail yourself of that. And if you have someone who fits in that age category, seniors in high school are able to come. And then those who are uh, college and career age are, are invited to come as well. On Wednesday, January the 24th, in this room, we are going to have Jonathan Lehman. Jonathan Lehman is a pastor. He's also an author. And Jonathan has either a master's degree or or a doctorate in political philosophy. So he's not only theologically astute, but he's also politically astute. He pastors near Washington, D.C. He was on staff at a church called Capitol Hill Baptist Church for many years. Capitol Hill Baptist is so-called because it is right at Capitol Hill. It is four blocks from the Capitol. I've been to Capitol Hill Baptist, and I walked to the Capitol 
on a Sunday afternoon after the uh, service there a number of, of years ago. So of necessity, he and the others there had to be keenly aware of political issues and how to navigate that in a, in a church setting. And he's written a, a, a recent book called Authority, and it's about how we are to, uh, how we are to behave ourselves in various uh, instances of authority and submission, but including government authority and submission as, as citizens. And so he's written very ably about that. We'll have those books and other of his books available when he's here. So just mark that. That is a Wednesday evening, and it is the 24th. It is January the 24th. We will not restart our midweek classes then till the following week. This is the latest that we've ever started the new semester. And it's just because Jonathan's coming and we didn't want to start the week before and then have a break. So we're starting, restarting on January the 31st. We have two more in this semester, two more Wednesdays, and then we're off through the holidays and we don't resume again till January 31st. All right, for this series, God's design for sexuality, as I've said to you, I've tried to create a, a framework through which you, I hope, can think about this as you interact with others about it, whether in your family, in the workplace, just as, as friends, and try to get your mind around it, both theologically, doctrinally accurate, but then we're beginning to look at some of the practical issues that come out of that as well. And in order to give that framework, uh, the title was carefully cho chosen, God's Design, for sexuality. And the three key words there, God and design and sexuality, have made up the way uh, I've gone through this material. So we saw early on that you should start any discussion about any issue uh, deftly, you know, not as immediately coming in and beating somebody over the head uh, with uh, a Christian witness very directly, but in conversation. But in conversation, bring people back to the necessity of God show that God is necessary for all things. God is necessary for existence. God's necessary for logic. God's necessary for language. God's necessary for ethics and morals. And so Christian people need to think that way. It's thinking that way that allows us then in our interactions with others to do what 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 says, that we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. But one of the ways that we do that is by showing people that all people are God-referential, meaning that everything we do, everything we are about has reference to God, even though we forget that and we don't, we don't think about it. And certainly an issue like this fits into that, into that category. So go back, you can listen to that if you, if you missed it. All of the recordings are on our website as are the notes for you to, to be able to follow along with those recordings. So you start with God, not only for this issue, but for all issues. At that seminar on January the 6th, I actually have the workshop, but I also have a general session to do, and I'll be looking at Acts chapter 17 and Paul's interaction with the philosophers at, at Mars Hill, uh, the Areopagus in Athens, Greece, and how Paul did what I'm saying here. So the reason I'm saying it is because Paul did it, Okay. And, and Paul started with God, and he told those philosophers you need to start with God, and he showed why. Then the second word is design, and I have tried to hammer home over these last few weeks that everybody believes that there are things that are wrong, there are things that are abnormal, there are things that are disordered. Everybody believes that. Even non-Christian people, non-religious people all believe that there are certain things that are wrong, 
certain things that are abnormal and certain things that are disordered. What you want to show then in attaching it to God is that in order to say something is wrong, it has to be wrong vis-a-vis right. That as compared to right, well, where does right come from? Who defines that? What's right? Or to say that something is abnormal then assumes a standard of normalcy. Who determines that? To say that something is disordered assumes order. But people talk in terms of wrong and abnormal and disordered all the time, but we can help them to think about, you need to have a source, you need to have a standard for the right, the normal, and the ordered. And then with regard to sexuality, the Bible teaches that God has given it for three reasons. For procreation, to be fruitful and multiply, for protection, that is protection against your own temptations to sin by engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So if you're someone who has sexual desire, the only sphere in which sexual, the only uh, righteous outlet for sexual desire is within the bonds of marriage. And therefore, then uh, seek to seek to be married paul says in first corinthians 7. so it's for procreation it's it's for protection and it is also for pleasure first corinthians 7 says for couples not to regularly engage physically with one another is to defraud uh, one another uh, and then you have the song of solomon which is uh, very direct about the pleasure that god has made for the sexual relationship between a married man and woman Now, the temptation is for us to focus on the most disordered forms of sexuality. And I have tried to, in the last few weeks, to urge you to resist the temptation to focus only on the most disordered forms of sexuality. I mean, this issue is a hot topic because we are seeing increasingly more and more disordered forms to be sure. One of the reasons that when we sent the mailer out to invite people in Trenton to come to this series, that we got social media response, and some of it hostile, was because this has come to the fore in the last 15, 20 years in ways that it has not ever in the history, not only of America, but literally of the world. So this has come recently, and it it has come quickly, and it is moving fast. But the temptation then for us is to focus on those most disordered forms uh, that are most, those forms that are most disordered from nature. When in fact, God says that the only righteous form of sexual expression is within the bonds of, of marriage, which means there are all kinds of other forms <laughs> that are much more common that are disordered and that those are the temptations for you and me. So one of the, one of the uh, benefits of focusing on the most disordered forms from nature that we're seeing in recent years is that it takes the focus off of the stuff that most of us are tempted with and we engage in. But we've been giving way to that for decades in the Christian community. And we've allowed sensuality to become more and more normal in our 
in our uh, media choices, uh, in our discussions. In let me just be frank. I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'll move on. But whoever you voted for in 2016 or 2020, or who you vote for for president in 2024. You know, vote how you think you need to vote. But do not, as a Christian, promote people who are sexually deviant, even in heterosexual ways. Let him that hath ears hear what I just said, okay? Christian people cannot promote that. And if you feel that, if we feel that we have to vote a particular way and sort of hold your nose as the lesser of two evils or five evils or whatever it is, so be it. But we cannot promote that, even if it's our God. So the temptation is to focus on the most disordered forms of sexuality, disordered from nature. So we look at homosexuality and its various forms. And we say with Scripture, hey, that's unnatural. It is. The Bible says it's unnatural. We've listed verses on the previous pages in the notes that you have that say that very thing, that this violates nature. But, including, including, but understand this, that included in dis, the disorder that is sin, that... Sins that are disordered from nature are only a problem because nature reveals God. In other words, homosexuality is not first a sin against nature. It's, it's a sin against the God who made nature. It's a sin, who ma a sin against the God who made it natural for heterosexual sexual expression to be the, the norm. And so we say, you know, that's gross. That's unnatural. That's weird. All of those things are true. But the reason that it is unnatural is because God is the God of the way things are supposed to be. God is the God of creation and of nature. And so all sin, now hear me, all sin is a disorder, a deviation, a perversion of what God has intended, heterosexual or otherwise. And so we can easily see sexual acts as a problem because they violate nature, but nature only matters as it reveals the God of order and the God who made it that way. So, hear this now, all sin is related to God. Things are only sinful because they relate to God. Not because they first violate nature. Not because that's gross and it's unnatural. Yeah, all that's true, but there's a reason behind that, a much more important reason, namely God at all times. All sin is vis-a-vis -vis God and unnatural sins are so because God is the one who normalizes what nature is to be. So that's the way we need to think about it. That's the way we need to think about now these more disordered from nature expressions of sexual sin.
but we should see them in the overall category of sin, all of which is a deviation from how God intended it. By definition, sin perverts, distorts, deviates from what God intended. All right, page 21. Then, we started trying to deal with some claims now that are made currently and in our culture. And we left off, I think, toward the bottom of page 21, I think. Anybody remember? Anybody care? Okay. So, top of page 21 says Christian homosexuals. And one of the, you see the bulleted claims, the homosexuality prohibited in the Bible was unnatural, Why would, but what's practiced today is natural, and we talked about the biblical response. Second bullet, the homosexuality prohibited in the Bible did not involve commitment. Here's the biblical response, that the condemnation given in the Bible is about the act itself, whatever attitude uh, attends it. And then the third bullet, the homosexuality presented in, uh, prohibited in the Bible is part of the Old Testament law that does not apply today, but we gave passages earlier in your notes from the New Testament that condemns homosexual expression as well. Bottom of page 21, one claim is that God has made homosexuals that way, so to be any other way is to deny God's sovereign design for their lives. Top of page 22. Even if there is found some direct correlation between one's biological makeup and his sexuality, it is still the case that biology is not destiny. In other words, one's sexual behavior is too complex to reduce simply to biology. If homosexuality is connected to one's biological makeup, the Christian response should still be that of resistance and avoidance. Now, as I have been at pains to, and I've taken a long time over the last few weeks to show that we are all born, we are all conceived as sinners with a sin nature, and depending on our nurture and our personalities, the way that nature will express itself will be different. So you are tempted with things that I'm not, and I'm tempted with things that you're not. We're different. But what we all have in common is that we're all sinners. And so, that second paragraph, because we are all born sinful creatures, we are naturally sinners, yet the Bible commands us to flee those things. So the fact that I'm born a sinner doesn't then give me the excuse to be able to say, well, therefore I will indulge. Because I'm tempted in particular ways that you are not, even naturally, because I'm naturally a sinner doesn't mean I can go ahead and do it. Homosexual desires, like any other lust which flows from our depraved nature, must be resisted. One should never entertain or gratify his sinful desires, his depraved desires, even though they may be naturally and biologically based. Scripture clearly teaches that one cannot be a practicing homosexual and a Christian at the same time. Now, again, this applies to other sins. If, if you are someone who is in the regular practice of a sin that you will not fight and give up, then the Bible says you need to question whether you're a Christian at all. 1 John 1 8, 1 John 1 8, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. So John reminds us we're all sinners. But then he says, but if we sin, and we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the one sins and the other doesn't. (laughs) Because Christians still sin. The difference is a Christian cares about it. A Christian doesn't want to sin. A Christian wants to be rid of it. That's why a Christian confesses it and repents of it and goes a different direction. Now, we fall, and if you have particular, not if, because you have and I have, particular uh, temptations, different for each of us, then I may fall at that same thing multiple times throughout my life. But I'm regularly seeking to abandon it, repent of it, confess it. And so the same thing is true of the sin of homosexuality. If someone says, hey, this is just me, take it or leave it, and I'm going to engage, you can't be a Christian, according to the Bible. But you can't do that with any other sin either. Take it or leave it. I'm an alcoholic. Deal with it. Scripture clearly teaches one cannot be a practicing homosexual and a Christian at the same time. Christians with a homosexual background will struggle with temptations just like heterosexual people do. They may even occasionally backslide and engage in homosexual sins. Those who repent of such sin and seek to change have evidence that their profession is genuine, but those who embrace and condone a homosexual lifestyle are thereby rejecting the clear teaching of the Word of God. All right, we said at the top of page 22, biology is not destiny. It's true. From a moral standpoint, spiritual standpoint, you are more than biology. We are not materialists. A materialist is someone who believes that all we are is physical, material. But we are physical and spiritual. We are material and immaterial. So biology is not destiny. And I want to add importantly, very important, neither biology nor circumstance are identity. I say it again. Neither biology nor circumstance are your identity. We often take our circumstance as our identity. You see it over and over and over again with people. If if a Christian person, unfortunately, experiences a divorce, their spouse leaves them, their spouse divorces them. Their world is rocked, of course, by that. And we've had brothers and sisters who have gone through that over the 22 years that we've had this church. I've counseled people in that situation. Of course, we try to help them uh, through that. One of the ways that I counsel is do not take on divorce as your identity. Divorce is your circumstance. So you, when you're thinking about yourself and you're talking about yourself, you don't lead in your thoughts or in your words with, I'm divorced. Don't think about yourself first as divorced. It can take over your entire life. Now, when it first happens and you're having to get adjusted to this new reality and all that, of course, it's going to be uppermost in your mind. But the counsel has to be, do not take that as your identity. It's your circumstance. Likewise, you get a diagnosis of cancer. You have to adjust to that, and your world is rocked. But cancer is not your identity. Your sickness is your circumstance. It's not who you are. You're an alcoholic. 
and Alcoholics Anonymous has, has not helped with this. And I'm not against AA, by the way. I know a lot of Christians are. I know lots of people have been helped by AA. I'm not against it. You just need to understand what it does well and then some of the things it doesn't do well. You know, the idea is, you know, choose a higher power. Okay, I, I would say choose, choose the true and living God. I would, <laughs> he's got a name, Jesus. Okay, choose him. So that's one of the things. And, and one of the things they really emphasize, though, is that you are an alcoholic and you will always be an alcoholic. Now, what they're trying to emphasize there is, look, don't think that there's going to be a time where you won't be tempted with this. So you need to be vigilant all the time. I totally buy into that. So I'd prefer to say it that way because I don't want somebody to take alcoholism as their identity. It's your circumstance. That's your situation. Same-sex attraction is not who you are. It's your situation. It's your particular temptation. It's your circumstance. So just like the rest of these, and let me just throw in one that you do. Most of these are things you don't do. You know, divorce was done to you. Cancer is done to you. You know, alcoholism you obviously participated in, but you didn't intend to become an alcoholic when you started drinking. And same-sex attraction, you know, many people testify that from the time that I was a little kid, that I knew I was different than those, those around me. And so that may start at a, at a very early age, but none of them are your identity. And then, you know, take somebody who's a kleptomaniac, a thief. I mean, this is something you choose, right? But that's clearly not your identity either. And so with all of these, whether they're done to you, whether you participated by choosing at least some of it, whether you chose it outright like, like theft and it developed into an, a, a, a controlling habit, you should not say, I'm a divorcee as you're, or think, perhaps more important. I'm an alcoholic. I have cancer. I, sh I have same-sex attraction. I'm a thief. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. Lead with, always, in your mind and in your words, if you belong to Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian who's divorced. I'm a Christian who has cancer. I'm a Christian who struggles with alcohol. I'm a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. Just like I'm a Christian who struggles with certain temptations, someone can be a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. Say it that way. That's the reality. So I'm a Christian with those. And, and notice what we're leading with. We're not leading with the circumstance then. We're leading with the fact that we are our relationship with God, which is all important for everything. And so I'm a Christian who struggles with. Therefore, Christian is your identity if you belong to Christ. And always in your thinking and words make that uppermost, which means people should not say, I'm a gay Christian. Because gay is not your identity. Christian's your identity. That comes first. So I'm a Christian who struggles with, fill in the blank, and we've all got different blanks. Now, we have arrived at a time, and I alluded to this last week, 
we've arrived at a time in our culture where these more obvious and unnatural forms of sexual expression are upon us. And they have moved quickly from the demand to tolerate to a demand to affirm. And that's a huge difference. I remember when I was about 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, that would be the early 70s, I was 10, 11, 12. You guys can do the math on how old I am then, okay? And I, and I remember back, you know, you guys know back in those days, there was no cable TV. You only had three channels, two, four, seven, 50 if you had UHF. You had the rabbit ears. You tried to go, okay. And I remember being alone, and the TV was on, and the news was on channel two or channel four. And the anchor man was reporting on a a demonstration that took place in downtown Detroit by a group called Gay Pride. This was the early 70s. There were a relative handful of people at that demonstration, demonstrating for tolerance of the gay lifestyle. Weren't many people there, and the anchor man was really poking fun at it, believe it or not. I mean, it was just something that was not out of the closet. Now, that was about 50 years ago, okay? And in the 50 years since, we have come a long way, baby. And in that time, there have been louder and more voices saying things like, who are you to dictate what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom? And as I said last week, that argument has won the day. And so things like don't ask, don't tell in the, uh, in the, the military have, have fallen by the wayside. And they have gradually moved from tolerate because this is a private issue to affirm because we are coming out loud and proud. How does it show up? It shows up in your workplace. So DEI, some of you know what that is. Diversity, equity, inclusion. And companies have DEI then policies that employees must abide by. School. So at school, our young people, in many cases, are being encouraged to be what, to express what they feel. And if you feel like you're attracted to boys as a boy and girls as a girl, then you need to be willing to and able to come out. If you go to a school counselor and you say, my parents would, would not approve, in some cases, not all school districts to be sure, but in some cases, you have counselors and you have teachers who are trained and who desire to protect their kids from the harm their parents can do them. So we're not going to, this will be between us, and we'll help you through it. We had a family in our church. They, they've relocated. They've, they've moved on. We had a family in our church with a teenage daughter who uh, transitioned, not surgically, as far as I know, at least while here, not surgically transitioned to more and more expressions as a male. It's created difficulty for the, for the parents, as you might imagine. 
But one of the things that was most difficult for them to navigate was the school, the, the, the local school here that their child went to, the high school. The high school was on her side against her parents. And one of the families uh, of, a, of a friend in her class took her in to live with, to live with them. So she finished high school living with somebody, living with another family. And that other family saw the family from our church as puritanical and harmful to to their own child. So these are just some of the kinds of things that we're facing. Let me give a few others. Adoption. So can gay, homosexual couples adopt children now going into homes with two men or two women. Further, surrogacy. Since two women, of course, cannot conceive a child together and two men cannot, then you have people paying women to be surrogates for them because they can. So a woman in effect, rents out her womb for the purpose of a child coming into a two-man family or a two-woman family. Now, back when we were being told, you need to tolerate this, whose business is it, what I do in the privacy of my own home, you see that none of this is private. This is all quite public And some of it are things that many people, many of us could not foresee. Unintended consequences. But once you have marriage legalized between a man and a man, a woman and a woman, then there are all kinds of ripple effects that are going to come out of it. And some of them are these. So in our final couple of weeks, I want to talk about some of that, how I see the way we as Christians need to try to handle those things, but they are, they are serious matters. I'll just give you a preview, for example, for DEI. Uh, this matter is in the courts, and it is winding its way through the courts, and it is going to have to be adjudicated in the courts. What rights do Christian people have in the workplace to refuse to lie about someone's identity? by using pronouns that are not accurate. I worked with a guy on Friday, and Monday, this guy I worked with is now she, and I'm supposed to call him she. Now, I have the, I have the luxury of working here, but I used to work a real job. For 20 years. I know what the corporate structure looks like, all of that. And I'm thankful I don't have to deal with that, but I pray for and I am burdened for you all who do. And if I were still in the workaday world and I worked in a company that told me I had to do that, as this is winding its way through the courts, this is what I would, this is what I would do. I would go to the human resources department. And I would register my protest that I want it in my employee employment file. That this is violating my rights to free speech and religious liberty. 
and anything you're making me do is against my will, and anything that I do is only until the courts speak. Now, I believe, I'm, I'm optimistic about what the courts are going to do. I, I may be wrong, of course. I may turn out to be wrong. But I'm optimistic that the, court, the Supreme Court of the United States will ultimately rule that religious people do not have to be forced to lie in violation of their conscience. I think we will win that, I think. We'll see. It's winding its way through the courts. But if they rule against that, then we are faced with, now we are faced with the kind of persecution that we didn't think we would have in our lifetime. So we'll talk some more about that later. Middle of page 22. How should Christians treat homosexuals and their families? We're commanded to love and give the gospel to everyone regardless of the types of sin they commit. Further, the Bible's teaching on the universality of sin ought to have a humbling effect on the believer such that he resists the sinful temptation to look down on others for their particular struggle. Therefore, we, when we come in contact with a homosexual, we must show him kindness and respect, make every effort to build a God-honoring relationship with him and give him the gospel. If we do not, we're disobeying and dishonoring the Lord. But in the radically reordered environment in which we now live, we may increasingly hear words even from church members like accept and support in the context of outings within our church's families. So I'm predicting for you that that will happen. That you will have, as the culture continues to do this, that you will have young people among us, and we've had. And we will have more and other churches do as well. And where parents who love their, their children to death, literally, would die for them. Love them, want the best for them, and we as their church family do also. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with this? And so, immediately, I understand that a parent would say, listen, I support my child. They might even use words like I, like I accept, but... So don't react the minute you hear that word. Like, wait a minute, you can't accept homosexuality. You can't support homosexuality. So I'm just urging you not to react with a knee-jerk reaction when you hear these kinds of words. Here's why. It's important to remember that the connotation of those words may be different than the denotation. I mean, what they mean by that is I love my child. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. So we need to be patient in discovering what people really mean by what they say. Acceptance may simply mean I still love my son, daughter, and I always will. Support may mean I love my child and I will be there for him or her no matter what. And most of us, I think all of us, would say all, both of those about our children, right? As we try to navigate through, okay, practically, what do I do with this? So we, as a church family have got to continue to cultivate, it is paramount, that we cultivate a culture, an environment, where it is safe to be a sinner. Mom and dad, parents, it's, it's safe to be a sinner. It's safe for you to be a sinner on an individual basis. It, this must be an assembly. This must be a place where it is safe 
for parents to have struggles with their children. And to not feel ashamed to say, will you pray for me? Will you support me in this? I have seen over the years parents in Bible-believing churches in a sort of unspoken competition with each other. You know, we're doing the right things in our home. That's why our kids are turning out right. And then somebody has a child who strays. And they don't feel like they can say so because there is this sort of standard that's been set that if you would just do what I did, somehow you failed along the way. And if we're not careful, we're Job's friends to people who are struggling like that. So I am telling you, parents, brothers and sisters, as the pastor of this church, I do not believe that. I have never believed that. I'm doing my best through things like this, to keep anybody else from believing that. But if you ever get that, if you ever get that vibe that there's a, a way to do it, and if you'll do it this way, then it'll turn out okay. If you ever get that vibe, you're not getting it from me. I believe Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I believe that Proverbs 22.6 is a proverb, which is, by definition, a general truth. Generally, it's true. It's not a legal guarantee. And in an assembly of any size, an assembly of this size, you are going to have children who wander. Our prayer is that it's temporary, we will lo- that, that we can love them and be used as God's instruments to love them back to their families and back to himself. That's what we want to do. But there will be children who stray, and some won't come back. We can't force that. The norm is, the Bible does teach the norm, train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he will not depart from that. The norm, most of our children who are raised by faithful parents who have that modeled before them, most of them follow that, thanks be to God. But not always. And even the children who follow that have their own sets of struggles, right? And so we need to see it that way, approach it that way, communicate it that way, have that kind of mindset so that when, not if, we have families who have this particular struggle come up, they know that they can go to the leadership. They know they can go to you all, more important, and say, I've got peers here and I've got brothers and sisters here who love me, who will not judge me, and who will uphold me and support me. If we're going to get through this, and we will, it's going to be because we are a community who sees ourselves rightly before God, humbly before God, and that we act that way and we talk that way, and we invite people to know one another, gather with one another, pray for one another, Get in a community group. In that community group, during your prayer time, pray for your children. Pray for your families. If you're having particular struggles, then swallow your pride and be willing to say so. And the people there to gather around you and put a spiritual arm around you to uphold you. So how should Christians treat homosexuals in their, in their families? With absolute and overwhelming 
love of Christ. And we walk this road together. And I pray that that will be the case for anybody here who, has, who, who experiences this problem or any other problem with their, with their children. I'll give one example and we're done. It's almost noon. From my own life, um, my precious daughter Annie would not mind me sharing this, but um, when Annie and Lainey were 16, I uh, made it a point to go out with each of them and give them some jewelry and have a father-daughter chat about how much I love them and cherish them. And when I got together with Annie, I said, uh, Annie, look, um, your dad is a pastor. And I know that that's put pressure on you over the years. To feel like you have to conform in a particular way. Annie's the one of our two who would talk about that. Why do I have to? Why do we have to? That's Annie. Lainey was like, I'm cool with it. But Annie is like, uh, so, and we, and we love Annie because that's our Annie. And we loved her in her way. And I said this to her. And I said, uh, look, pastor's families are just by the nature of the case. They are under a, bit, under a bit of a microscope. But I don't want you to conform to what we do because of my occupation. I want you to conform because you believe it and you love Jesus. And I also want you to know that if you don't, my love for you will never change. We will get through whatever it is together. And we both almost didn't make it through dinner because we're both crybabies. But thanks be to God, our daughter understood that when, not if, she struggled, she could come to us. Because we love her more than life. That's what happened. And God used that. God used that, I'm going to use the word unconditional, but God used that overriding love in His grace, He used it. It's not me, it's not my wife, it's God's grace. And He used that in the life of our daughter. And I'm thankful to Him for that. And here's why I bring that up. Please understand, you, I'm not trying to praise myself. It's God's grace. But I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, that's what we got to do. That's what we got to do one-on-one -on -one with our kids. That's what we got to do in a macro way as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for instructing us. Thank you that that instruction comes because you love us. 
You've given us light from your word so that those you love don't wander. So thank you for loving us and therefore instructing us. And Lord, thank you for seeking us when all of us were far from you at one time. And thank you even after we have initially come to you in salvation for coming after us by your Holy Spirit to convict us and draw us back to yourself because you love us. We thank you that you are the God who is always welcoming the prodigal. And Lord, we are prodigals. And in our waywardness, sometimes we go down paths that harm us, that harm others, perhaps for prolonged periods of time. But every one of us does it. So help me to remember that, help us to remember that, and help us to remember that you are the God who looks afar off. And when you see your child, you run toward him or her. May we have your heart. May we express that heart as a church collectively and as parents in our homes individually. May our children sense it, find security in it, so that when, not if, they struggle, they know where to come. They know what they will find. And families will get through it together. This church will fight through it with them together in prayer and in support and in encouragement. So Lord, help us to be, as Community Bible Church, a family of families. Families that love you, families that seek to honor you, and then a church family that is seeking to honor you, bringing it all together and supporting as best we can. Go with us, we ask you, this week. As we seek to serve you, as we seek to express your character in the various places that you've assigned to us to do that accurately, grant us safety, bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.